It was almost just chopped off right when it was getting good. It's like, really? Right when they're getting good, right when they're getting fun, they pull the plug on the team. It was very, very depressing. And it wasn't just like it was the shock and, 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 and disbelief of it. It was like what they had done to our team that did this wonderful spider's web had been constructed so delicately and intricately and it was just ripped down and it was done. It was finished. And it was, uh, it was heartbreaking for us as a group. Because um, some, some, some amazing memories, oh man, some amazing memories. They, they just felt, they lost faith, I guess. And that's, it's like being told by your first love, I don't love you anymore. I don't love you. You know, I, I, there's somebody else. There's a hardcore group that has been begging for the last 12 years to please bring a team here. I really believe MLS will be back in Miami. And I think that everyone involved learned what kind of team would get this audience excited. And it was going to a game knowing that you weren't just going to see a game of football. You're going to be purely entertained. Because if that doesn't turn you on, if that team doesn't get your heart and say that's what the game's about, nothing will. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Thank you, Corey Coates, and welcome one and all to the show that never ends. It's Good Seats, still available, the Curious Little Podcast. That is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, whatever you're doing to ingest this week's fun and frivolity. We have both of those for you this week as we circle around one of the two first ever Expansion franchises in Major League Soccer history back in 1998, along with the Chicago Fire, who still exist. The Miami Fusion, four years of the Miami Fusion, is the subject of our Miami Fusion Roundtable this week with our guests, Joe Shaw, John Trask, former coach, and Jim Rooney, former player for the Miami Fusion. Joe Shaw, the chief instigator of this, is the uh, host and producer of the awesome new podcast series called 25 for 25, the story of the Miami Fusion. Give it a listen. Some great episodes already and plenty more in the hopper. This is a labor of love uh, for Joe uh, and those who have uh, chosen to also participate. Um, They go deep into this interesting uh, situation in Major League Soccer's history. Uh, this was a team that only existed for four years, uh, but it won the Supporter Shield, or wasn't even called the Supporter Shield back then, in 2001, their last season. Uh, and you heard a little bit of sort of the uh, wistfulness of the end of the demise of this team. 2001, Miami Fusion uh, won the uh, league championship, the regular season league championship. They bowed out in the semifinals of the playoffs. But uh, by all accounts, they were, and frankly, uh, uh, historically, still revered as perhaps, arguably, uh, one of the best teams to ever play in Major League Soccer. They finished the 2001 season 
uh, with a 16-5 and 5 record. And they played uh, very, uh, the, I, you would argue, the beautiful game. Uh, and Ray Hudson, uh, who was the coach that season and uh, partially the year before, uh, is uh, an integral part of the Miami Fusion's story and that, let's call it, championship season. And as you heard in that clip, it was um, a kind of unceremonious end uh, to the Miami Fusion's not only 2001 season by uh, losing out in the playoffs, uh, but it was a contraction year. I have to remember that uh, after this season was complete, uh, there were the uh, horrific um, events of, of September 2001 uh, that occurred, of course, during the uh, as this would be sort of during the uh, the playoffs, or actually just before the playoffs began, uh, and um, the economy was not uh, doing very well, and it was um, a whole bunch of uh, changes in Major League Soccer's early history. Right, starting in 1996, uh, it was now 2001. It was bleeding, hemorrhaging money, uh, and uh, one of the uh, changes that were um, that was brought to bear was to contract uh, both the Fusion and the Tampa Bay Mutiny at that time. Uh, two steps backward, if you will, to go forward. And and now uh, we, we almost forget that period of time here in uh, May of 2023 when we literally have just uh, seen the announcement of its 30th franchise in Major League Soccer, a team that will be domiciled in San Diego. And with, in all likelihood, probably two more teams to come in the next couple of years. I, I cannot imagine there will be another round of uh, expansion uh, when 2026 rolls around, the World Cup is here, and all the uh, the hype and hysteria of the world game uh, probably generating even more interest, uh, economy notwithstanding. Um, but uh, the task at hand uh, this week is a roundtable conversation. We're going to talk about the the short history, the uh, colorful characters, people like Doug Hamilton, and of course, Ray Hudson, the players coach, if there ever was one. Uh, the old Lockhart Stadium uh, is part of this. Diego Cerna, if you remember him, uh, tearing it up in 2001. Uh, sorry, in uh, actually uh, 98, 99, and 2000. He played in 2001 as well. Uh, Diego Cerna was the, the the team's leading goal scorer for the first three years of its existence. Alex Pineda Chacon uh, had 19 goals, led the league, I think, that year in 2001. Uh, he makes uh, a, a a virtual appearance. Um, and lots of great stories, lots of great anecdotes, uh, and again, some um, truly um, uh, fun reminiscences. And, um, you know, we even talk about sort of the legacy, right? Uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers that came before them uh, in uh, in Lockhart Stadium there. And, of course, Inter-Miami, the uh, team that now exists in Major League Soccer, returned to that market. Uh, and the Miami Fusion's role in, I guess, kind of – uh, connecting those two, the NASL Strikers and today's MLS uh, Inter Miami franchise, uh, one and we cannot forget the Miami Fusion and the role that they played in keeping pro soccer uh, alive and thriving, at least for that period of time, in between those two extremes. So we're going to um, get into all of that with uh, with Joe Shaw, John Trask, and Jim Rooney in just a few moments' time. They all participants in the 2425 podcast uh, that Joe has uh, been producing. You can find that wherever podcasts are found. Uh, and before we get there, uh, I do want to shout out uh, one of our great sponsors. Of course, that's Sports History Collectibles. 
com, And um, that's our pal Dean Mitchell in San Diego, who is ecstatic at the fact that Major League Soccer is finally coming to San Diego after a long drought. Uh, obviously, the San Diego Union of USL has existed for a couple of years. Uh, the San Diego Soccer's soldier on in the major arena soccer league and all that legacy. But the uh, Soccer's, the San Diego Soccer's of the old NASL, uh, used to play in the old Jack Murphy Stadium. Well, you know, a lot of memories could keep coming, uh, just running right back uh, to Dean and all of his pals there. And um, you go to s- search up at uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Not only will you find uh, tremendous uh, memorabilia from those San Diego Soccers in various forms, but also uh, to the delight of our listeners this week, uh, there's a, a wonderful Miami Fusion 2001 media guide. And boy, that's the guide to get. Not only was it their last ever media guide, but that was the one that uh, kind of uh, is sort of the backdrop to their championship or at least uh, regular season supporter shield, although it wasn't called that back then, uh, winning performance, the Miami Fusion. You can find that, that Miami Fusion 2001 media guide among zillions of other memorabilia items uh, from all kinds of different sports and leagues. It's memorabilia of all those leagues that thrived or failed and shaped the North American sports landscape of today, and the Miami Fusion is no exception. You can find that and many, many other great items at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Take a peek. You're going to enjoy the the search. You're going to enjoy the the thrill of finding stuff. Uh, The photography is wonderful. You'll know what kind of stuff you're getting. It's high-quality stuff. Uh, There's new stuff there just about every other week. And, of course, when you decide to purchase an item or two or 10, make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS to ensure 15% right off that uh, total, uh, courtesy of Dean and us at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS, 15% off. Visit them early, visit them often, and uh, you'll uh, you'll be better for it for sure. Uh, just all kinds of great stuff. Uh Miami Fusion stuff. There's a Miami Fusion pennant that just recently sold, um, and I'm sure more items to come. Check them out. Good, uh, the good seats still available. What I was going to say, we're gonna promote the promote the website again. Our website, forget it. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code Good Seats. Thank you, Dean, and thank you all for checking them out for sure. All right, let's uh, get out of our tongue-tiedness here and get into a tremendous conversation, a wonderful discussion about. The good old days of the Miami Fusion. Let's talk about that team in South Florida. It uh, had some great memories, some great uniforms. And uh, here's our conversation we had just a week and a half ago. Please, as always, enjoy. The Miami Fusion, of course, sort of uh, fits right in because this was a, uh, a, a, a very interesting existence for albeit only four seasons in the earliest days of MLS, lots of intrigue as to how it came about, um, what it kind of set in place, some of the things that have uh, come from it and arguably need to be credited to. And um, frankly, it's demise, which um, is all part of the fabric and the story. And I think a lot of even current generation of fans, right. Don't even, even remember the mutiny of Tampa Bay or, or the Miami fusion or, or some of the even original names of, of some of the teams that's still around. Um, but Joe, let me start with you and then we'll, we'll layer in Jim and John to kind of introduce themselves. But 
Um, sure. you're, the, you're the sort of chief um, corraler here of this thing. Tell us why we're here, because uh, I just listened to a couple of episodes uh, this week, and uh, it's it's really cool. So why don't you give us a background and the setup and what it is? Sure. So I think the best way to do that is to explain how I fell in love with the game of soccer to begin with. So my dad started working for the Dallas Burn. Uh, there's the throwback back in 1996 and started bringing the whole family to volunteer because at the time, um, every it was a family affair. Everybody chipped in and volunteered. So I started volunteering in 1998, 25 years ago, as a ball kid. Uh, at, at the at old the, Cotton Bowl, right? At the old Cotton Bowl. That's right. And the first game I was a ball kid for was an 8-1 to one loss to the LA Galaxy. But the one goal that Dallas scored was an Olympico by Damian Alvarez. And it was the net that I was behind. So that was my first exposure to soccer, and I fell in love ever since. So for me, MLS was where I first started following the game and fell in love with it. So fast forward, MLS has always been my preferred league that I follow and am uh, fascinated with. And so uh, I know uh, Jim's brother, Al, pretty well. I met Jim uh, through through Al. And when I was looking at telling stories, because I love to tell stories, I've done various podcast projects I've been wanting to do more sports stories. And so when looking at uh, the timing of MLS doing a big Apple deal, there's rumblings about, you know, this guy named Lionel Messi possibly coming over lots of chatter in the league. And we got the 2026 World Cup coming up. It felt very fortuitous to tell a story about the history of MLS, because I feel that the more that a league like MLS grows, the less new fans know about the history and the fabric of the league. And the more I dug into uh, the Miami Fusion, which, in my opinion, was the best team and the most exciting team to ever play in MLS, I would say, not arguably, that's my personal opinion. Um, the more I realized how much the players, the staff, uh, the coaches impacted the foundation of the league. I mean, Garth Lagerwey, I just did an episode with him. And, you know, he was a backup goalkeeper for two years, but he got uh, got advice and perspective from GM Doug Hamilton, which informed a lot of decisions he's made as an executive through the years. So without Garth coming to Miami and learning with Doug, you may not have the success you see in Salt Lake or Seattle and maybe yet to come in Atlanta. So there you go. Uh, and who have you brought along with you to um, two folks from your podcast series? By the way, you didn't mention the name of the podcast series. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, the uh, Rookie Mistake 101 right there. So, yes, the podcast is called 25 for 25, the story of the Miami Fusion from those who lived it. And because 2023, March 15th, 2023, was 25 years exactly from the very first game that the Miami Fusion ever played, a 2 nothing loss to D.C. United at Lockhart Stadium, uh, I felt it was very fortuitous to to do a bit of an oral history of the team um, from those that were involved in it. So the goal is to do 25 interviews across 25 episodes to chart the 25-year anniversary. And who have joined me today is uh, Jim Rooney. I mentioned him a moment ago. So he was the perennial captain of the Fusion from 99 through 2001. And then John Trask, who is the assistant, one of the assistant coaches for the Fusion that joined when Ray Hudson took took the role of head coach in 2000 and then 2001 season. So, Jim, I guess you were the earliest uh, of of the two here um, to sort of get uh, uh, brought into the um, into the fusion fold. How did you what was your pathway into the fusion? Was it was it the super draft? It probably wasn't even a super draft at that point. Right. Or how did you you know, how did you get into this MLS thing? It was only two years old when the Miami Fusion came around. Yeah, it was it was it was a weird time, you know, because. 
a lot of us as players, we were always waiting for this league. And, you know, you heard stories about it's coming, it's coming. And, and it finally came. But the league minimum wage was $24,000. And so a lot of players like myself who had a job, I was a little older. I wasn't coming out of college. You know, I, it, it was a real decision for me because I was I was making I was working construction, um, you know, learning. I was a, a third year apprentice at um, local three in the electrician union. And then I was also in the, the carpenters union at one stage. So I had to make a decision of, you know, is this going to be worth it? Because at the time when the soccer was on, I and we, we all played before MLS was USISL. And that was mostly like a we, we got paid seven months and I, we got paid seven months because we made the playoffs. So it was a great second job for me at the time. So the first two years, I didn't really go there to the MLS because it wasn't it just wasn't worth it for me. I just couldn't afford to go. And then um, the year um, prior to 98, the Rough Riders, we played New England in the U.S. Open Cup and the quarterfinals. And we ended up I think it was a quarterfinals. They got us to the semifinals, but um, we beat them 4-3. I scored two goals, and it was, you know, it was it was a big win for our club. And so it, it kind of got the juices flowing, and then the, our coach ended up going to the Metro Stars the following year, and he brought me along. And then my path down to um, Miami Fusion, I ended up, after my first year playing there, I was released. That's a story in itself because they fired that coach and they brought on Bora Milutinovic, who for me was a disaster. And I was Wait, so you, you played for both, you played for both Eddie Fermani and for Bora? No, no, no. I didn't play for Mondello, Alfonso Mondello. Oh, sorry. I, that Fermani was even the first one. So I this. Correct. You're right. Here we are. Second, yeah. third year of the franchise. You're in your third coach. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Right. And, but that's the way it was too at the time. So, I ended up down, going down to Miami after um, I was actually released and they picked me up there. And then from there, um, I was basically, I, I seen it all from there. Cause it, it was, I actually got released on April fool's day, April 1st. So when I came down there, um, you know, I was there from that day, the second part of the season on, and, you know, I've seen it built. And like you said, you know, um, Joe mentioned um, he spoke with Garth and, you know, Doug Hamilton. I mean, you know, do, since Joe has brought this fusion um, thing up to us, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, there's things that you forget. And it, it's 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 made me, you know, just listen to Chacon and John's interviews. And, and you're like, you know, it's a different perspective. And. Um, you know, it triggers other thoughts. And it really made me think about Doug Hamilton a great deal. And, you know, if it, you know, Ray gets all the accolades and he should. Ray was the, Ray is Ray, Ray was the man. But there's no Ray, Ray, Ray Hudson Ray, for our listeners. Ray Hudson, who you're referring yes, to. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so, so explain, why don't you explain also about Doug Hamilton? Because he he was a seminal figure in the early days of MLS for sure. And one of those people, I think that 
sadly, it's going to take a few more years for people to kind of look back and and really understand the history and stuff and really rec- recognize just how how fundamental and foundational he was as part of those early days, which were, were there were no guarantees, were there? No. And, and, and that's the thing with Doug. I mean, if, if there's no Ray without Doug Hamilton. I mean, Doug had the ability to have a vision and he was he was right. Of, he, he rarely made mistakes, but he's the one that got Ray to come in because Ray was the community director for us. And he was also like announcing for us initially. And, you know, those two put the whole thing together. And, you know, Doug Hamilton brought John in. And then he he did things. He was for the players. And I'll give you an example as to why, you know, money, you know, if you did well, you know, you wanted to be rewarded, you know, everybody wanted to be rewarded. And then at times it was difficult the way they structured contracts and everything. But what Doug said was there was and during my contract, he had said, you know, yeah, I do, you do believe you deserve more, but you know, you're tied into this contract. He goes, but maybe, you know, he, he taught us how to read contracts and he, and he never told us, but he hinted. And it was basically things like, instead of, you know, you start your first four games, you know, you get a certain amount of money. It was like, just change the wording to 75% of the games and you could have a new contract. I mean, it was all those kind of things where he, he just helped everything. He knew everything when I really think about all the little things that he helped us along the way. And, and again, he, I'm convinced, you know, with Doug at the helm, everyone says, Hey, how would you guys think you would have done the following year? I, I just believe with the people involved, we just would have got better. John, before I drag you into this, I just want to ask Jim one sort of last question on this front. Um, you you hinted at it before. I mean, you're you're a New York guy, uh, you know, born and raised, right? And, um, right. you know, I I I think it's lost on uh, a certain generation of MLS fans, right? That in the beginning years, you know, of this league, you know, eight teams and then ten with. Miami and Tampa Bay coming aboard in, in, in 98. Um, you, you're really sort of uh, highlighting a, a financial sort of fork in the road, right? I mean, at once you're sort of seeing uh, the fruition of all these rumors and the, and, the, and the wake of the World Cup and all that kind of stuff, a real professional league. It's been, you know, what, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years since the death of the of the NASL. And But yet the reality is that, you know, you've been sort of in that sort of uh, in that middle point when there was, I mean, there was, you know, s- smaller levels of pro soccer that were sort of limping along, but financially, right. You, you also were pulled by the fact that you got to pay bills, right. You got to get a career going. You got to, you know, and, and I, I guess the real tension there is how do you justify making the jump? I guess the Metro stars at the time, not so hard of a jump because they were a local team essentially, but how do you right. make that? How do you further that commit by saying, I'm going to go to Miami now for, for, you know, uh, for the next step of my career. I mean, there's probably not only a leap of faith, but also a, I don't know, a real a tightening of the budget belt. No. Big time. And it, and, and it was, it, it was a leap of faith, but you know, you, at the time, I guess we're so stupid, you know, and being young and not, I mean, I thought about it, but at the same time, you know, you're looking, I don't want to be, and, you know, uh, my wife said to me, I don't want to be 40 years of age and looking at you saying I could have played, you know, and it was it, it was just that simple where, OK, 
if I'm going to do this, that, that there's no half-assing. You got to go full tilt into it. And I did. And, you know, you have to get breaks along the way, you know, and that's a big part of it. But I mean, the, some of the contracts that they were throwing around, you know, by the time you signed your first contract, it was 24, then it was like 26 and then $27,000, you know, for the non essential, that was for, for the middle of the road, like the, the, the journeyman. And you just can't live on that. So what I did is I went, went later and I, I was back then, they called it a designated player. You know, I was able to get a little bit more and I was able to get, I matched, they were able to match the salary that I got, um, that I wanted because I went to preseason without a contract with the Metro stars. And, um, we were there six weeks and I ended up, we ended up playing and I, I was scoring goals there and I was a local kid. So obviously, you know, the, the writers, I, 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 my timing was just really good. And we ended up playing AC Milan. We lost three, one, I scored the goal, you know, little things were just happening to go my way during there. And so from there, I was just like, you know, let's go. I had a little bit of pull and I was able to get a, a decent contract back then. But yeah, it, it, it was very difficult. And, you know, we knew that going in, though. I mean, honestly, for me, the age I was, I wanted to be in there because then I really this was my avenue, avenue to become a coach. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be involved in the game. And honestly, that's one of the things with Doug Hamilton was saying to me. Listen, we keep going there. I would have moved probably into one of the assistant coaches or third assistant down the line. And that was my pathway. And then it was then it was gone. John, how about your entree? Uh, a little later, I guess Jim had already sort of been on the roster for a couple of years. Um, how was your entree into the fusion? And, and was it Doug? Was it other people? Was it sort of uh, how did you sort of, if you will, fall into the situation? Uh, yeah. I knew Doug from uh, his days with Adidas. I was coaching at Indiana University where I had played. Um, pretty high profile collegiate program. Uh, still is to this day, actually. And uh, no question. Doug was the head of Adidas soccer. And so we all got to know each other. And, and uh, you know, Doug then went on and kind of moved out of soccer for a little bit, if I remember right. He was involved in like Kobe Bryant's deal. Um you know, like one of the first mega deals ever. And then he came back to his passion, which was soccer and ended up being the GM um, down in, uh, you know, for Ken Horowitz's team. And uh, when he realized he was going to hire Ray, I think he was looking for someone. He felt Ray was going to be tremendous in terms of marketing, his vision for it all. But I think Doug knew my background in terms of training players and, uh, felt that I would be a good match, I guess, with, I think as importantly, it's like Jimmy saying, you know, Doug, it was bigger than him just thinking I would be a match with Ray. Maybe it was that I would be a match with some of those players. And ultimately it, it was a really, it was pretty easy for me. And, and part of it is because we were talented. Uh, I said it in Joe's podcast you know, the notion that 2021 or 2001 kind of came out of nowhere is, is very unfair to a lot of players. There were some tremendous players with the fusion right when I got there in 2000. Not all of them were around the following year, but they they were talented players. There was no question we made it to an Open Cup final. 
So, you know, interesting, Tim, I read up a little bit on you. You know, I, I was a kid who grew up watching the Chicago Sting and professional soccer went away. I, I don't think I would have ever played at that level, though I was a pretty good player. But I saw a whole generation of my friends who were top level guys who never got a chance, you know, unless they were on the 90 World Cup team or the on the 94 World Cup team or fortunate enough to parlay something in Europe or as Jimmy said, most of them ended up doing the USISL or playing indoor. And so when we got a league, I think to this day, we're all always kind of pinching ourselves saying, wow, we've really arrived. Well, back then, arriving was like Jimmy was saying, getting paid 24000 and telling me how many bridges he would come over from Long Island to get to New Jersey when he first got his opportunity with the Metro Stars. It was call it a crime of passion in a way by anyone who was involved in the league. I mean, other than maybe Valderrama or someone, no one was getting big money. I mean, I'm sure Landon Donovan to this day thinks about what he would make in, in today's MLS compared to what he made when, when he was coming through. And I know Jimmy feels that I know there's a lot of, and I'm sure there's a lot of former NBA basketball players and NFL guys in the early years that probably know that same feeling. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say the parallels are, are you know, all the NASL and even ASL conversations, yeah. and even MISL, uh, to some extent, would. Uh, it, it, it's it's almost like you're, you arguably are the modern day pioneers, right? Because it's the same kind of dynamic, really. I mean, out of the wilderness comes a new top, you know, Division One pro league after an absence of almost you know, ten plus years, right? And. Um, and yeah, you have to make those decisions and or sacrifices and or um, chase the dream for that one last time. I mean, you know, Jim, to your, to your wife, to your credit, your wife is probably smarter and savvier uh, with a long term uh, perspective on life than that maybe you were at the time because you probably would have been filled with regret. Right. But uh, but it's not an easy decision because, you know, there's life and then there's the dream. Right. And. Th this sounds like a partial dream. It's like, we'll give you the dream, but you got to subsidize some of it. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and even at that time, um, my wife was pregnant when I went over to preseason, she was ready to give birth. And literally the day I arrived home from preseason from Italy, she went into labor. I mean, and these are the differences with the players from now, for the players of my generation is we really had to chase the game. We had to really chase it. Now they don't have to do, which is perfect, which they shouldn't have to, but we really, you know, just, you know, even pick up games for ourselves to train. Like, so for example, in the off season, um, we all played out the Rough Riders, me, Giovanni Savarisi, Chris Armas, um, Kevin Anderson, you know, all these players, we would meet down in uh, Hoda Bavarian Soccer Club on Long Island and we would train in the snow just because we wanted to, you know, we had to really train on our own in the off season, you know. So, I mean, it's just all those little things. But, you know, it, it was what was required and we did it. You know, we didn't complain. Uh, that's not true. We complained. All players complain. But we get through it. And, you know, that's what it takes. And, and you know, it's, uh, you know, you can't, for me, I wouldn't have it any other way. Jimmy, Joe, Jimmy complained right. every day in practice that I couldn't count to six. <laughs> that that oh, usually would, 
that was the start of our training sessions was Captain Jim Rooney and myself having a little word about how the scoring was going to go today. Well, listen, one of the things is our job is every day. And, and the funny thing is, you know, you think about it. It was me and John. Ray called me into the office every day. And I just look at John and I get because uh, yeah, where he was sitting, I'd get to see him first. And I'd gauge him and see if he was quiet. Then I knew one of the players, something happened. Someone didn't come home. So there was a little trouble. I gauged a lot. Of, so me and John, even after every game, we, we went off by ourselves and we had a beer afterwards and had a beer outside, just me and him, just talking about this different things, uh, moments. But we used to play, when we trained, I would train and we'd go for a couple of laps and then I'd say to the boys, are you ready? And I'd let John know we're ready. And then we'd play a game mostly half field and it was blackjack, 21. And the idea was just possession. Every time your team passed it to the other thing, and John could not count. And he'd miss <laughs> a lot of the passes. So that's why. And it wasn't just me. It was probably 22 guys or whoever lost, the 11 who lost. <laughs> that's hilarious. I guess whatever it takes to kind of get through. Yeah. Uh, all right. So yeah. let, John, actually, maybe uh, John, Joe, uh, maybe you can um, help us infrastructure wise, because uh, before we get into sort of further anecdotes here, I... I, I, we've mentioned Doug Hamilton, who I think it's important to sort of suss out here was essentially the general manager for the, the bulk of the time on this, this team. But I also want to bring in uh, two other dynamics to this, and maybe this will help sort of uh, engender a few more memories and, and, and thoughts of, of your perspectives of this at the time. One is the chairman, Ken Horowitz, essentially is the owner operator, which was the term right. in major league soccer, right? Single entity, which, you know, it was not a new concept, but I think MLS was sort of modernizing it and burnishing it and, and you know, trying to uh, be judicious as a business model to do so. And the other is the stadium involved, um, the former uh, and then renamed uh, or, or refurbished Lockhart Stadium. Um, right. Maybe some of those dynamics, Joe, to kind of sort of frame this for listeners who may be a little ignorant of these you know, four or five years of the fusion's existence. Sure. So in 1998, Ken Horowitz bought a, or it was actually before that to start in 1998, bought a uh, MLS franchise. So the league had 10 teams and then Miami and Chicago came in to make it 12 in 1998. Ken paid, I think it was 25 million for a, a MLS franchise, which at the time had he entered in as an original would have been 5 million. And so he was very passionate about uh, creating or having a team and, and having a team in Miami. And then the original plan was for the Fusion to play in at the Orange Bowl uh, in Miami proper. There was a bit of a dust up between uh, the powers that be in Miami and Ken. And so the decision was made. Uh, Ken mentioned he always had a backup plan and that backup plan was Lockhart Stadium. But the problem was it was not uh, it would not be up to sort of MLS standards from a capacity standpoint. So I think it had eight or 10,000 that it sat at the time. And so they uh, sort of retrofitted it to seat up to 20,000. Um, and really Lockhart Stadium in that sense became the first stadium, which was uh, expanded, conditioned, created, whatever you want to call it, to be soccer specific. Now, it wasn't built uh, to be soccer specific. That was the original crew stadium in 1999. But Lamar Hunt did come to Lockhart to get uh, an understanding of what Miami did in order to make it 
uh, perfectly compatible compatible for soccer and took those learnings into building the Crew Stadium in 1999. So Ken Horowitz, owner-operator of the Miami Fusion, decided to bring soccer back to Lockhart Stadium, and it really continued the the storyline within South Florida soccer of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, where Ray Hudson was a prominent figurehead, bringing it now forward into the 90s and then 2000, early 2000s. Uh, with Ray Hudson as well. As Jim mentioned, he was community relations manager, community manager, uh, announcer, um, and then later becomes the head coach. And so the Ray Hudson, Lockhart Stadium, these storyline beats continued from NASL and into MLS. And just for an additional bit of grounding for folks, the Miami Fusion was only in existence for four years in MLS, 98 through 2001. And then that was it. There have been other teams that have been contracted in MLS uh, since then. Tampa Bay, Chivas USA. There's teams that have been relocated, right? So Houston Dynamo were relocated San Jose Earthquakes at one time. Um, but the Fusion were truly four and out. Um, and it's what's unique about it is they went out on top. 2001 Supporter Shield champion, dominant team, went to the 2000 US Open Cup final before that. And then that was it. And a lot of people speculated about why were the few, why did the fusion fold? Was it poor attendance? No. Was it this, that, or the other? No. And when it boils down to it, I did an episode with Gabe Gabor, uh, who is uh, still employed with, with Major League Soccer to this day. And we discussed the fact that at the time, MLS as a league was bleeding money and they needed to cut costs. Don Garber came in in 1999, was the commissioner. And said, we've got to we've got to stop so we can grow. And so the decision was made to uh, have some additional investments within the league uh, to be able to sort of stem stem the 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 blood, as it were, uh, the green blood, um, and then grow. And then it got to the point where the decision was made to fold two teams. Uh, original discussion was to be Dallas and Tampa Bay because those were the two league owned teams that didn't have an owner. Um, and then Lamar Hunt came in, swooped up Dallas. Ken didn't want to stay with Miami, couldn't find a buyer for Miami. And so the decision was made for Miami and Tampa Bay to be done. And that was it. So so let me and then like if this is a 50 point toss up question. right? So um, give me this. Give me the background on, on Ken Horowitz. Right. So in some respects, sort of the. Um, you know, the first outside, if you will, the from the versus the uh, the original cabal that sort of uh, got things up and running under uh, Mr. Rothenberg in, in 96, did you, um, did, the, did what was his story and why was he so, um, I guess, quick to look for a sale? I, I get the sense from what I remember and what I read that he was kind of the, I don't know, the, the pauper of the bunch maybe, or maybe he wasn't as well-funded perhaps uh, beyond the $25 million uh, franchise fee, which by the way, you know, at that moment, right, that time, one of the first two expansion franchises, that was a pretty hefty and and uh, ballsy amount to kind of put up against something like this. I mean, blind faith or whatever, but um, it sounds to me like he didn't have the finances to kind of be there for the long haul. Well, as uh, as uh, Gabe tells it, and I think it's been covered as well in, in a couple of different uh, entities, but it got to the point where the decision was made uh, to continue the league from the 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 billionaire standpoint. So we're talking about Anschutz, we're talking about Hunt, right? We're talking about those levels of, of guys and others 
were millionaires. And I'm not uh, being a bit flippant with say millionaires versus billionaires, but it was a decision on we could fold this league or we could keep it. And the way to keep it is by investing more money. And when you when you had invested as much money over the last four years as someone like Ken Horowitz had, and he was, I believe, the uh, founder of Cellular One, just from um, a, a understanding of where sort of the money uh, came from. When you have the perspective of, I put a lot of money into it. Yes, the 2001 season is is successful and people are finally coming. Um, it was a decision of, I don't know, is this you know, is this a, a sunk cost fallacy at this point? Am I just going to keep continuing and to contribute money? Is this not going to grow? And as we know, the memory of the NASL was still fresh on a lot of people's minds on whether or not this thing called Major League Soccer would would indeed grow to the heights that it has now 25 years later, or well, uh, 20, 22 years later at this point, because 2001 to, to now. Yeah. Well, no, and, um, and, and plenty of yeah. uh, big four sports uh, exactly. uh, jobs that we're kind of almost rooting for it to fail again. Right. Right. Exactly. And so it, it, it did get to the point. I don't want to, I don't want to say Ken did not have the funds to stick it out. I do think it became a harder decision when you don't have sort of the portfolio, like a hunt or an Anschutz to be able to make sort of that longer decision. And it does become a, you know, sink or swim right now type of decision kind of kind of thing. So that's, that's a bit. So yes, to answer your question, it was finance related. Um, but I do think um, at least the stories that I've heard, there was an earnest attempt to keep it going from Ken and from Ken's party. Um, but it was a decision where it got to the point where the funds weren't necessarily there and no one was coming in to, to fund the fusion. John, Jim, do you, do you remember sort of, uh, I'm curious as to what your sort of um, day-to-day life and lifestyles were uh, both on the field uh, and off the field too, the fans and, and, you know, the, the relative small crowds and the fact that you're in, in, in truly in the middle of South Florida versus being closer to Miami or um, all that kind of stuff. I mean, did you ever get any senses that there were, that that the 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 financial situation of this club in particular or uh was you know potentially in question or even hints of the league uh being a bit wobbly uh during your player or, or were you just concentrating on the job at hand and that is playing uh conditioning uh nutrition travel all that kind of stuff well f- from a player's perspective um yeah we, we we were aware of what was going on um to we didn't dive deep into it as players because we we came around as a team um, with the coaches and everything. There's nothing we can do about it. So the best thing we can do is go to work, do our thing, what we're do the thing that we're there for, and really make it hard for them to make that decision. And that's what we that was our main focus. We, to, to, to say to me right now. Did you know that, you know, if you lost, because I've heard many different things. I didn't, I was not aware of that once it lost. I knew it was a possibility, but um, no, I mean, we just went about, listen, we can't do anything about it anyway. Let's go and do our thing and, and, and see what happens. And, you know, that was a player's perspective because we couldn't change it. And and just to add on to what Jim's saying for context for folks, Jim's referencing the 2001 playoff fi- semifinal against the San Jose Earthquakes, 
where it really it really came down to there was a lot of rumors and discussions even at that time of whoever loses might be the team that ends up getting folded. And so there was sort of a little extra incentive um, on whether or not to win, at least from certain parties. And so it did end up the fusion lost, the fusion are gone, just to clarify that. Well, and, you know, Joe and, and Tim, um, you, you know, some of it as well. I mean, I wasn't privy really any more than the players. I think Ray and Doug, protected all of us so we could go about our jobs which i thought was very special of both those men we didn't need to concern ourselves every day because we were the type of group of you know i i was always with the players we would have it would have self-consumed us unfortunately luckily we just got to go out and enjoy what was just a wonderful period of time i look at that i was involved for 18 19 months and it was the friends I have, the the connections through that team, Jimmy and I still speak. You know, when people ask me, well, who was the captain? I said, Jimmy Rooney was the captain. And I introduce him as such. And, and I've coached a long time, and there's very few other people that I introduce as my captain. Well, Jimmy Rooney's my captain. That That's who he is. And and there were a lot of things like that. But I look back on, on Ken and you know, that was one of the first kind of tech bubbles happened. I believe it was in 99 or 2000. And so here was a man who had done very well for himself up until that point. Now he's in the league of the Anschutzes and the Lamar hunts. He thinks he's arrived and on paper, you know, whenever that tech bubble hit him, it hit him hard, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, now we've been through a few more of these cycles with the stock market, but I think, that one hit him in a way that Anschutz and these other guys could craft. They could ride it out. Ken didn't have the same level of wealth. And he had put in $25 million for the franchise, which was much more than most of the guys had put in. And I think as the cash calls, and I don't know, I'm, I'm speculating, I think as those cash calls added up, which – very shrewd business. You look at what Don's done for the good of the league over an extended period of time, but it was tough on Ken Horowitz. You know, I, I, I met the man, I believe once in my 18 months I was there. So, you know, he was just an owner to, to us, you know, we knew who he was in that sense, but we weren't friendly with him. Ray and Doug, that was management to us. And I think Jimmy would say that, you know, from the player's perspective, I don't know, Jimmy, how many times did you ever meet Ken? Yeah, I, I mean, we, we'd see him at the games every so often, but, you know, he wasn't, you know, around like John had said as as, it, as such a, an owner like Lamar and all those other guys. So, but again, I, I don't know too much. I, I He's a nice man. And like I said, the business side of it, that was just – a different level for me at the time, for sure. How how about this stadium? I mean, because the, the the you know the other thing is that he put also put five million dollars extra into, uh, I guess the plan B, right, which was the re rehabbing of Lockhart Stadium and then sort of you know summoning up the uh, the friendly ghosts, I guess, of of the strikers in the past and and trying to stir up some memories of those golden times. I mean that that was a, it was a rickety sort of thing, but man, that place rocked back in back in the NASL days. Um, I must admit, I was actually at the second ever uh, 
uh, Miami Fusion home game against the Chicago Fire. That was our that was the Chicago Fire's first ever game. Actually, I traveled down to it, and I was uh, I, I remember the week leading up to that game. They were talking about how they were hoping the, the paint was going to be dry <laughs> for when that game was going to start. But I was just I was flabbergasted. I mean, I had seen. Lockhart Stadium games, you know, when Ray was running on the field and stuff. And, and you know, it was, you know, it was it was a high school stadium, maybe with a couple of extra pluses. Um, but I was pretty impressed. I was uh, yeah, from the scoreboard and all the way through. I mean, it was not, you know, top of the line by any means, but it was it was I mean, it was it felt cozy. It felt uh, comfortable. It felt um, soccer centric. Um, and yeah, I you got the initial glimpses of what you know, I, this was even before the idea of soccer specific stadium became a term. Right. But there, ha, there's a lot of un, uh, un, uh, I don't know, un, undue credit or non remembered credit. I think that should be given to what, what he did, especially in the short term to get that thing as a, a viable, uh, you know, uh, benchmark perhaps for what a soccer specific stadium could be. I mean, no doubt about it because, that field that we played on, I was the best, it was one of the best fields in the in the league. And and, and as a player, that's what I remember that's that why too. We were, yes, yeah, we were able to play the way we wanted to. There was no excuses, so we, I mean, we loved it. And again, it it was it was an atmosphere of um, you know it was really tight. You know when when we got going, and you know just even when we started getting over midfield playing, you know, putting balls through and five and six players running into the box. I mean, the crowds, I mean, it was loud enough, you know, I mean, it's just like anything else, unless you were there at the games. I mean, it, it, it was a very good crowd. And like you said, you know, Miami, um, you know, we, we never really thought about it. I mean, Fort Lauderdale to me was the best place to play. And we loved playing there as players. Okay. I mean, my first season, I mean, I loved playing at Giant Stadium. Obviously, the facilities there and everything. But, you know, what, what, I mean, you see the place now. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to play there for that. But at the time, I mean, it was like a middle-of-the-road facility. You know, it wasn't the worst, but the field was excellent. And, and, and that was that was the big thing. And we, they put a lot of money into that because it was perfectly flat. I mean, completely flat. And, you know, we'd play in Columbus and the ball would roll off because the drainage and stuff in the old stadiums. But this field, you could play. There was no excuses. So we loved it. How about the fans? And I guess that from an outsider's perspective, um, having never been to Lockhart Stadium before that game, um, you know, it felt like it was kind of, I don't know, uh, off the highway, off the beaten path. There wasn't a whole lot of sort of commerce around it and stuff. Um, I don't know if that's just the South Florida kind of layout, right? Because, I mean, you know, uh, Hard Rock Stadium is off, also off a highway, too, in Coral Gables. I mean, I, I'm d- did it matter, right? D- did the Fort Lauderdale strikers' memory help or hurt or have no effect whatsoever? Did the name Miami turn off people to the fact that they were playing in Fort Lauderdale and ironically a situation we're dealing with now again with inner Miami, at least in the short term. Yeah. I think, I think it's changed from now in terms of, you know, going to Miami back then. I mean, we had, I mean, it was, you know, comparing that to 
now. Like, for example, I'm sure every one of us watched Champions League. You know, and everybody, you know, the access to all these games, we didn't have that. As a matter of fact, um, after we played on a Saturday, we always came in and trained on Sunday. And the, most of the players who played, it was just be a sh- short little session. But the the players who didn't play, we, we stayed around and watched them. And then afterwards, we would go and watch the second game in a local pub just across the street. And we'd have an English breakfast and we drink, we'd have – couple of beers and then we then we'd go home uh, some of us would go home but we we would end <laughs> up going home it was just a different time you know and you know it it was very florida like you know um you know the beaches you know i mean we hung out when i first came down there and garth myself and garth we were always down at fort lauderdale beach always and so it, it had a different type of lifestyle but at the end of the at the end of the last year, every one of the players in the MLS wanted to play for the Miami Fusion. Clint Mathis every time was begging me to talk to Ray to to get him to go to Miami Fusion, and you know that says a lot right there. Yeah, you know Tim as a as a former NASL guy, you know fan as you as you said. You know, I, growing up, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I used to go to Sting games all the time. I knew all about the strikers. I had actually seen Ray Hudson play a couple times long before I ever got to meet the man and then work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a kind of semi-legendary franchise then as the strikers, which I believe Jeff Rusnick did a nice job on one of the other episodes kind of talking about that. So there was this groundswell of soccer in South Florida, which I think Ken Horowitz just thought he would tap into immediately, but it's a sophisticated soccer fan in South Florida as well. Mm-hmm. Probably a little bit like Chicago and you better be good, you know, and, and, in fairness to fire, you know, they, they won two trophies their first year. They were good. And everybody was waiting for the fusion, you know, could they, replicate anything like the strikers because the strikers had some really good teams and some really good seasons and some legendary players on top of Rocky Ray Hudson, um, you know, Nene Cabias and some of the other guys that played and everybody was wondering and wondering. And then, you know, Jimmy shows up from New York and we pick up another guy and there's this guy and Diego Cerna comes back from his knee injury and Ray's, work in the network to find more pieces of this puzzle with Doug. And all of a sudden, all these people that used to be striker fans was like, wow, this is what we had hoped for in 98. We're finally seeing it in 2000. And maybe it took, maybe it took Ray being a strikers guy to say, you know what, this league's all right. You know, it's not where the NASL is yet but it's all right to be a fan of this league. And and the next thing you knew, it just, I don't know. It just became like a snowball. It just, you know, the players felt it. The fans felt it like it was, uh, it was just a well, like, little moment. Well, Tim, of yeah. Like t- Tim, one, one of the things was the very first time, I mean, John mentioned the Fort Lauderdale strikers had, I mean, Nene Cabillas, I mean, world-class players. And, you know, I knew Gerd Mueller. You know, I was a Cosmo fan. I didn't like the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. 
And I used to tease Ray, Ray about that all the time. But you you get to the point when when Ray, with all those great players, every, you know, we see uh, the world sees Ray's commentating now. But Ray was like that as a player to the fans there. He was the fan favorite. And let me tell you, when his first game, they announced the players, and then they announced um, Ray Hudson's name. I'm telling you, it was like a rock star came into the, the place. It was unbelievable. Even, you know, we knew he was well-known, but we were like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. And especially the younger players who really didn't know, they're like, oh, man. You know, so we we felt it. I mean, and, you know, Ray's energy that he brought, I mean, he just translated it to the players. But he he was Ray Hudson in South Florida, and now he's, you know, the magisterial, messy talker. You know, he's the guy. That was every day. <laughs> I, I remember kidding him after I got to know him a little bit. This was – it wasn't quickly. It was four or five months. And I said, Ray, do you have the key to the city? Like – as a mayor and he's like oh yeah they gave me that a long time ago i mean that's who ray <laughs> is in south florida i mean he's uh he's his biggest sports personality i mean you know when he talks about hanging out with the robbies i don't think it was like typical player to owner stuff i think it was more the way jimmy was with with us um you know he had a special place in the owner's hearts and that's just, that's who he is, down deep. All right, what's this? 417 Helmets, my goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them, and many, many, many more. Available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. And, by the way, custom helmets can be made, too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets 
and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. Someday we'll get Ray on, um, but in lieu of that, um, I think it's also important to remember, um, not only was he sort of a catalyst in in 2000 and then certainly in the 2001 season, right? Um, I almost hear almost, a, a, it is almost like a wistfulness in your in both of your voices that if but only another season or two, right? I mean, not only did you, you know, win essentially, you know, the um, the league uh, regular season title. There wasn't even a supporter shield at the time, but I mean, th- this was a team that was fun to watch. Um, and frankly, I think if I remember correctly, uh, almost a, a spitting image of the head coach, right. Who in many respects, almost willed uh, uh, certain uh, uh, performances out of players and stuff. Right. And, and it's uh, the thing that's lost on people though, is that this was his first managerial role, right? It wasn't like, he had a, a huge coaching pedigree prior to this. That's correct. He was coaching a girls youth soccer team. Uh, that was the only <laughs> managerial experience he'd had before. And then after the fusion, he coached the uh, DC United for a couple of years. And then that was it. Yeah. No disrespect to the under nine girls crowd, but of course. But they were the Hollywood Wildcats. There you go. There's a deep cut. <laughs> so I, I guess the question in there is, is how much his, of his personality, uh, uh, it sounded like a lot, rubbed off, and if you will, maybe filled in the gaps, maybe where the, shall we say, technical expertise wasn't fully there, or did it not matter? Well, that's the, that's, that's the thing. Um, th- that's the big fallacy, you know, about Ray. And, you know, and as players, we, we, we knew what he brought to the table, but everybody thought of him as a rah-rah guy. And, you know, he doesn't know some, even some of the co- coaches that I was friendly with on other teams. They're like, oh, you guys are doing well. Congratulations. But Ray, how's Ray? But he's not really a coach. And we were like, yeah, yeah, he is. You know, and we took it personal because Ray knows the game inside out. I mean, and he's just putting the pieces together and he knows how to tap into the player's mind. Yes. He knows how to motivate us. Yeah. He, he, he knew how to do that, but to actually talk about, he always said, Oh, I don't get into the X's and O's in terms of training. No, he didn't. But let me tell you, he fixed everything that went on in that game. And, you know, there was no, there's, it's no accident. We only lost five games that year. And I don't think, um, as as a play, he gets the credit he really deserves because you, you know you can say oh you know it's easy to say one year but we you know we went to the Open Cup final I mean they built it and it wasn't this oh, okay we got lucky you know he all the players he brought in Bish Chacon worked every single Chris Henderson Precky worked everyone I, he brought Ivy the year before he worked I mean everything that he did and so. Honestly, to be as players, we we were kind of pissed off about what what they used to say. So we anything that we grabbed about that, and you know, we took it personal. 
for Ray because Ray knows the game inside and out. And I'm sure John will tell you that. Yeah, and and to kind of follow up on Jim's point was, you know, I heard the same things, you know, in the soccer world. I, w- I was a coach. I'd come out of the collegiate game. You know, oh, Ray, he's just a promoter. Yeah, he's like one of those English managers. You know, all you have to do is spend three minutes listening to him commentate on a game today. And you know exactly the vision that he told me that I needed to try to help promote with his players. And players and coaches, I've been an assistant coach for over half my career. You know, all you want is the head guy to have an idea whether he's demonstrative every day or not, he has his vision and then you can go about and he was tremendous in terms of delegating. First of all, most importantly to the players, that's why they loved him. He delegated to the players, but he also delegated to his coaching staff. He, he didn't get up in our kitchen. He told us how he envisioned the team playing And then he wanted us to have as much fun as the players were going to have. And I tell you, I, I, I've had two different environments, you know, Indiana university having worked for Jerry Yeagley, legendary coach. It's that same feeling, but anyone who thinks it was by luck with Ray is completely underestimating who he is. And I think he's shown it now with his announcing over the previous 20 years. He, he he's he's a visionary in terms of the game and he was able to get that over to Jimmy, the captain and all these pieces that he brought in. And that's why they loved him. And, and it was the bottom of the roster to the top of the roster. The players just loved him. I mean, they might not have liked everything he said or, or contractual things that happened, but they loved him and they loved playing for him. That's, that's the ultimate criteria of a great coach to me. Yeah, I think they get they call that a player's coach, right? And and um and that and that says something, especially if you have a team um, you know, that believes and can believe believe in the system or believes in the idea or believes that it's us versus the world or or whatever, you know, the uh whatever the obstacle or or the um the challenge that sort of might be in front. And that it speaks incredible volumes, right? Because uh, you know, that that's a <laughs> That that can that that can be a catalyst for a team that is, uh, you know, uh, lacking or or could be literally just energized and brings even the top class players together in in something beyond just the the individual talent on the field. Right, and and, and I can give you two quick instances that we did as a club that no other club team had. Has, has done back in back in those days we would go to preseason and usually we go for six weeks new england always went to um italy for six weeks and then you end up in mexico like four teams like us dallas um we, we'd be at the same facility and we go down to mexico and they'd only have one phone so all the players would be trying to call their families one phone we look at each other uh, we, you know no con- so it was never great traveling away so Ray come up to me and says, you know, preseason, you know, do you think it's big to go away? Like, yeah. I'm like, no, we go away there because of the weather. We have the weather. So we never went away for preseason. We didn't have to deal with all that stuff. So he stopped that straight away. He's like, listen, 
it's it's we're not going to go away and it's not it wasn't a cost cutting thing it was like it really is the players we were just like well this is great we'll work work harder and then mostly the I the thought first, it was because I thought it was because they didn't have Waffle Houses in Mexico, Jimmy. It could be that too. <laughs> <laughs> and he, it, it just got to the point where even the first, the, the first week of preseason, he said to us, "Listen," he said, "Well, he said to me, he said, look, we have to get our numbers, and we got to run the certain fitness we have to do.' But after that, he goes, "Do we really need two sessions a day?" And I'm like, "No." He says, "Listen, we're going to try this one week. We're just going to go." full hard but no slacking put it in the first day and we're like okay as players those little challenges work he gave us these challenges and we worked hard we never had double sessions after the first week everybody was double sessions i mean and that's good coaching management and as players we respected that and we were like man this is you know we never had that before you know and wow we could we have a choice he let us have input and, you know, even as small as that, we just felt we had a voice. And two things that were very important. We didn't go anywhere. We had the weather. We had – we didn't have to go anywhere. We're in South Florida, you know. So, I mean, he gets credit for that for sure. I remember one time Pablo Mastroni was pretty young uh, at that point. And, you know, he hadn't been to the World Cup yet. And and Pablo was, you know, he'd run a little bit hot and cold at times, but he was having just one of those perfect training sessions. And, uh, you know, Ray complimented him about three, four times and practice ended. And, and I remember Ray kind of walked over to me and he said, he said, what'd you think of Pablo today? I said, he was, he was unbelievable, you know? And he's like, oh, he's brilliant. He was brilliant. He goes, you know, John, the next time he's that good, I want you to just send him away with like 20 minutes left in training and I said send him away and Pablo loved to train he was young he was really hungry and Ray said yeah just tell him to go in take a shower get his you know get his juice you know whatever get his get his cologne on and wait for the team you know let them come in a few minutes after him you know make him feel special when he trains like that and I to this day I think about it all the time I mean that's brilliant man management. That's sports psychology at a really high level. Um, but that's how he thought about things too. Um, you know, it was always the positiveness, like, oh, if someone's being great, let, let him have the easier day then, right? I just thought it was amazing. Uh, some of his, his anecdotes that he used over the couple of years I was with him. How about some of the uh, players uh, not already mentioned um, that kind of stand out? I mean, I obviously I think there are two players in particular that um, probably most people remember most vividly because they were constantly scoring goals and leading the team and occasionally the league. And that's Diego Serna uh, for a bunch of years and um, Alex Pineda uh, Chacon, who uh, the last season, 2021, uh, lit it up. Um, was this kind of like a, a was the team like solely dependent on these guys or was this, it almost feels like those were the players that kind of, I think perhaps embodied what most people wanted the franchise to be exciting, attacking and, and, you know, on occasion, beautiful, the beautiful game. Jimmy, I'm not going to steal your thunder, but let me just say this just quickly. We, we were so talented in so many different positions 
I mean, I'll, I'll just say the starting lineup very quickly. It, you know, Ramondo in goal. Carlos Yamosa, Pablo Mastroni, usually uh, Tyrone Marshall, and Ivan McKinley across the back. Bishop, Precky, Jimmy Rooney, Chris Henderson, with Cerna and Pineda Chacon. I mean, just think for a second, and that's, you know, you're talking about guys like Kyle Beckerman eventually was on the roster. I mean, but that starting unit, there were so many goals. There were every locker had goals in it. I mean, we we could score from anywhere. And so, yes, what you see is Cerna and Chacon. But the moment you fell asleep on Jim Rooney, the ball was in the back of the net because he was showing up on the penalty spot. Well, if he was crashing the box and he didn't get rewarded for it, the ball was running on to Precky or to Chris Henderson on the other side. I mean, we we just came at you in so many different ways. And and the balls that Bishop would slip through to Jimmy or up to those front runners. And it's raised belief. And I think it was my belief. And I think why I got along with them in this group of players is the notion of true total football, not, not this position total football that everybody's talking about. Truly positionless in many ways. And that's what we were doing. And we had the players to do it and they bought into it. And it was a thing of beauty when done really in that Cruyff way of doing it. Not, not, you know, people are talking about total football today. And I'm like, actually it's antithesis of total football. It is position specific football can be very successful, but it's completely different than what initially was total football. Anyone could play anywhere. I would take Jim Rooney in a heartbeat and he could be a center back on my team. And he could definitely be a center forward as well because he was a total footballer. And we had a whole team like that and they loved doing it. I, I always maintain the best, the, one of the strongest part of our, our, our team was our bench because we had guys like Greg Simmons while they were young, which I think helped too. Um, Lazo Olivania, Jeff Billick, I mean, Jeff Billick came in, um, Bish was having an issue with his ankle, and he got an operation for two weeks. He was out for two weeks. Jeff Billick slides in, and we, and we, we, we didn't miss a beat. And then at times, Olivania would come in, and he'd be – Lazo Olivania was an unbelievable player. I mean, we had – and these are the guys we were playing against. I mean, Jeff Billick was like – I mean, he would go in and tackle with his own mother. I mean, he was tough little guy, but he, I mean, these guys held us to task each and every day. And, you know, there was times where, you know, their frustration, you know, you know, we got into a couple of pushing matches and stuff like that to competitive. But after in the locker room, we'd laugh about it, you know, especially me and Jeff Billick. We played the same position and me and Jeff Billick went to the same high schools. So we grew up in Long Island. And uh, although it, um, I think I was what? eight years older than him, but what a player. And those, he came in and then when Bish was back, it was just like, listen, he understood. He's like, listen, man, I enjoyed it. And that was the attitude that we had. And those players were unbelievable as far as, you know, um, just being, if you want to call them our supporting cast, but, but they weren't that they, they, they came to work each and every day.
So in, in, in that season, right. Uh, so many things went right. It was all, it just seems like everything was just magically in place. And aside from not sort of ultimately culminating with the MLS cup, right. I mean, a, a very successful season and almost sort of a, um, I don't know, a, a validation, I guess, of, of four years of, of hard work and a year and a half or actually almost two seasons, I guess, of, of Ray, uh, in charge and, and the team sort of gelling and coming together and stuff. And then dramatically, I guess it's, it, it, and it's, I guess you can't say it any, any less, less. So um, it all comes to a crashing end. And I, I got to think that that had to, I don't know, be just kind of a shell shock given just how many good things happened that season. Definitely. I mean, it's, it, it's a thing where, you know, you've heard it, during the you know throughout the season at certain points in time and i guess it's it's sort of like when until you really hear it and see it to believe it you know you don't really know and we only had four days we were shock you know isn't the word really we you know it was devastation really because and then we had to basically four days later now i'm on another team virtually you know from the announcement to the, you know because preseason was starting after that and i'm looking at four of my fusion teammates in new england revolution locker room i mean it was just i mean it was just so difficult um to to really believe we weren't together and you know and even now at times you know and even during the season We'd see each other during the season after the games, um, and we'd just look at each other. And we, we didn't even say anything. We just looked at each other and words that need to be said. I mean, yeah, we were happy still playing, but, man, we missed being together as a team and just just everything about it, really. And, and Tim, you know, it be remiss not to as well. You know, it was – it was six weeks after 9-11. I mean, you know, the world changed too. And I say this and I, I mean absolutely no disrespect to any of the other players or any of the other people involved in the league. The toll it took on the Miami Fusion 9-11 because we were so intertwined with New York, even though we were in South Florida from our owner all the way through to our captain, uh, to our center back. I'm not sure all the other teams in the league got hit the way we did. And that, that's a really unfair thing to say to anybody who was in America right during that point. But our whole front office was from New York. Doug Hamilton was from New Jersey. We were flying to New York City the morning of 9-11. We then were supposed to fly on Wednesday. Our first thought is, well, we're not going to New York. We've got to go to D.C. We've got a game three days later in D.C. We had no idea, as anyone did at that point, what was really happening. And so you had the league making decisions. We were the juggernaut team. You had all this. We were the supporter shield. We were the hot. There, there were so many different dynamics going into you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, Landon Donovan just took care of you guys. Uh, I don't think it was that simple, by the way. 
um, if you look at the three game series, you were tied to uh, uh, two games on aggregate. There was no, there was not an aggregate score and you guys lost an extra time in the third game. Right. Uh, so it was pretty yeah. competitive series. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a tough time on our front office and, 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 you know, the, the league in general, you know, there were so many, Joe and I got into it, you know, well, five points and now the playoffs, thing is going to be the same this year or something. I don't know. I, I haven't seen it all, uh, all the verbiage of it, but uh, you know, the, there were changes made on the fly that just happened to happen. You know, they had to happen. There was nothing, you know, Garber had to make decisions. Are, are we going to finish the league? Are we going to have a playoffs? Are there going to be any more regular season? But I think if we would have kept going for those next few weeks, I think we would have had no problem finishing off. I, I, I think it's it's an interesting question. I really haven't thought about it until you guys sort of put it in this in this perspective. Because I look at the schedule, right? I mean, your last regular season game, a three-one defeat of uh, of DC at home, was on September eighth, right? So three days later, obviously, yeah. um, the horrific uh, events happened, and then you know the 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 MLS playoffs were starting you know, a little later on that month. Right. And it threw a lot of, it threw everything, not just sports, right. Into a, into a tailspin. Right. But I, you know, it's hard to look back and say, what if, right. But you wonder, I mean, you mentioned it before you hinted at it before that there were whispers of a need to right size the MLS ship at this point in some way, shape or form. And it did seem like there were, ideations at least of a bit of a contraction play uh as a way to 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 affect that to start the the beginning of of that process right but i i i got to think that both of you all three of you frankly and me now now that i think of it have to give some thought to you wonder if something like that hadn't happened would miami have maybe been able to justify coming back or do you think it was maybe a fait accompli regardless of the events of 9-11. You, you know, I'll just... Oh, oh, go yeah, ahead, go ahead Joe. Good. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think it's... I think what's interesting, I've been doing a lot of thought ever since uh, doing this this series, and something that I think is helpful, uh, you know, we're recording this in 2023, and the COVID pandemic is still pretty fresh on a lot of people's minds, and you hear a lot of discussion from businesses and and frankly, you know, your neighbor down the street who talks about reevaluating their life in the wake of such a such a like life pausing moment. Right. And so to have a different type of tragedy happen on 9-11 in 2001, I think definitely put a lot of uh, a lot of people's uh, thoughts into perspective as to what their plans would be. And so I don't know if the outcome of the fusion season in the playoffs would have been any different. And I don't know if the fusion wouldn't have folded. I do think it's worth asking the question, did those in charge sort of reevaluate maybe what was important for them at that time when everything stopped and then resumed? That's, I, I think it is an interesting question. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's tough. You know, when those things are, kind of brought up in the sense that you know um my, for me personally um what 9-11 did was my brother my older brother was working on the pile afterwards so 
um, and he worked over 500 hours on the pile. And during that time, you know, he, he, you know, obviously the world was, you know, engulfed in that and just talking. And my brother was a pretty tough guy. And he, he, he just talked differently. I noticed a change in him and it was just obviously, you know, going back to those times. And eventually three years later, unfortunately he passed away from nine 11, um, respiratory issues. But during those times, just here, I mean, it was, you know, that John brings it up, you know, I don't really remember much of that being um, affecting me, but I don't know. And, you know, but it did, you know, hit us hard in, in terms of, you know, Carlos Humosa used to work in the World Trade Center as when he first came to this country. And he knew many people there. And, you know, I, my cousin, I mean, so everybody knew somebody there, but... It's just a diff. It was a it was a difficult time, and you know, I, I just remember doing what we what we had to do. I mean, that's all. Um, during that time, for me, our focus was going going on. We didn't know. I remember we didn't know whether when the when it was going to start up again. I'll tell you that. You know, that's what I remember from that. So, but yeah, it was certainly. I just, you know, I was in the office. I was in the office getting money from Nick Megalutis, uh, who was a former assistant coach, but Nick's a great guy, New York ties as well. And the first plane hits and we're sitting there and we're watching the TV and he's giving me the money to give to the guys on the road trip. And I'm thinking it's a beautiful day, which every day in South Florida is, but it was supposedly a beautiful day in New York. We were going to go to Central Park and play soccer tennis. And the guys love going to New York because Ray let him experience it. You know, the guys wouldn't even come home on the bus with us back to Jersey. They would hang out for a couple more hours in downtown and then be ready. And then we were going to D.C. It was always a big deal to play D.C. And then it was just, not only we're not doing any of that, we're like every other American wondering what the hell's going on in the world. And then thinking, well, we got this unbelievable soccer team. Are we ever going to get to showcase them again in the jealous little world that we all live in? Right. In our own little cocoon. Um, and I'm sure like Jimmy's saying, I mean, he had family stuff going on, really heavy stuff going, but everybody just wanted to kind of get back out there too. I mean, I remember when we finally started training, what was it Jimmy, maybe four or five days after when they finally yeah. said we could train again mm -hmm. and Yamosa brought his kids and it, it was a, di it was different. There was no question. It was, it was different. And, uh, you know, that that's what we were all dealing with. Yeah. It, it, that may be a conversation uh, to have with, um, uh, with uh, Doug Logan and, 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 and Don Garber, right. Who kind of, you know, would obviously have been in the driver's seats or at least in, you know, knowledgeable about sort of the situation before arguably during and after that sort of led to the decisions that were made, but I, you know, in hindsight, right. Um, uh, it clearly something had to be reset with the league and it's just, it's just unfortunate. And I hear it in your voices, right? The, aside from this, just the unspeakable tragedies and, and, and Jim, I'm sorry for the, the personal connection to that, but the, the, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 it's just unfortunate that a team that had done so well uh, would have to be, you know, not, not have a chance to sort of validate itself and go to the next level and, and continue the next journey. It's just these, 
you could you could you could excuse a team that had not been doing well uh, as being right. you know, ripe for for pruning, but not this one, right? Right, and you know, you you said what what would have happened if we won? You know, and that's the big thing. You know, um, I don't think we could have won because the referees, but that's another story. But we get to the to, to that point, you know, during that time, that's the thought process. But now, you know, it's 25 years. And look at the league. I mean, my imagination couldn't even create this league of what it is as today. As far as, you know, we could talk about Don Garber making decisions. Listen, Don Garber, it's hard to argue about him um, making any mistakes at this point, you know. I mean, of course, we're involved in it. Obviously, it affects our livelihood. And it affects it affected our livelihood, um, our trajectory, just as, you know, for each and every one of us, you know. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we, we, just looking back, you know, we were the we, we were the ones. And, you know, when you when you build something like that and you finally, you know, it's hard to get teams to get it together and then when you're a player and you see it you know slowly you're like wow this is working this is working this is work because we've been we've all been on bad teams and you and you see you're like okay this is it what, what you know you could basically see where we're going or how far we can go but this team was different and that's the real shame of it and you know i think everybody feels the same way even the fans more importantly and you know um I had a, my daughter and Jeff Kassar's daughter were, you know, little girls hanging out there. Half the time, we didn't even know where they were after the games because they were in the crowds taking our kids. I mean, that's how close we were to the fans. I mean, they came to our birthday parties. I mean, my daughter had a two-year-old birthday party. Every one of the players showed up. I mean, and that's rare. You know, we didn't have that in Metro Stars, you know. And so when you see that and then that's all gone, you know, that's the real hard part of it as a player. You're like, man, it's so hard to get together and to, to create something as good as that and look at it. I mean, that's what, listen, every pro soccer team tries to create a team that Ray created, you know, I mean, on the field. And, you know, but at the end of the day, look at MLS. It is incredible. And Dar Don Garber has done an amazing job. And, you know, you know, it's a, I think that, this is what ends up, I think Jim did a great job encapsulating that. This is what has frustrated me about sort of the legacy of the Miami Fusion up to this point has been every time you read about the league and the history of the league, with a few exceptions, the Miami Fusion are a bit of a footnote in, oh yeah, the Tampa Bay Mutiny and the Miami Fusion contracted uh, were contracted in 2001 by MLS. And yada, 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 we move on. And I think the Supporters' Shield win forced forces people to remember them but i think what's more important as a league like major league soccer continues to grow and evolve is to not forget about the foundation laid by a team with such a truly historical legacy as the miami fusion we're talking about garth lagerway you talk about chris henderson talk about nick Ramondo, you talk about ray hudson right all of these people who have gone on and impacted the game of soccer in such a fundamental way that we've got to continue to tell these stories and and keep a repository of them so folks can go back and listen and realize, wow, this team did more for Major League Soccer 
than I even realized. And we get to 29, almost 30 teams in 2023 because of a lot of the sacrifices that folks made 25 years ago. Totally agree. And I guess that sort of leads me to the last sort of question, which we're all kind of dancing around is, so what of the legacy? Um, How much, how little uh, has MLS uh, recently or at all uh, remembered? And in particular, um, Inter-Miami, where arguably um, that legacy is most or should be most easily or conveniently remembered, um, how much embrace has there been um, and or has it been a, a hands off kind of thing with uh, a desire to not remember that four year false start, perhaps? I hate to call it that, but I mean, I could imagine MLS wanting to whitewash things because MLS has done that. And, you know, I that's what do you guys think? I mean, where, what, how good or or I mean. I don't even know how much Inter is even uh, remembered or, or given, you know, any um, sort of uh, background love to this former franchise, aside from <laughs> bulldozing the previous stadium and building a new temporary one on top of it. So yeah, I think, well, it, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Joe. You no, you have to. You, I was going to say, <laughs> you, Joe. Do you want to take it first? Yeah, yeah. So I'll take. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll lead with this. So. I recently spoke with Chris Henderson, um, who former fusion player now in the executive spot within inter Miami. And I asked him about, um, and this is a little plug, right? By the time folks are listening to this, the episode will be out. Um, you can go check it out wherever you stream uh, podcasts. There's a little plug for you. But when I was speaking to Chris, I asked him about moving from Seattle to, to Miami and what that process was like for him. He said, it was a no brainer. I had to come back to Miami. I had to come back and make it full circle because of how he was impacted by the community, by the team, by all the intangibles that he experienced in that 2001 season. It meant so much to him. He wanted to come back and continue that legacy. Now, that was Chris's perspective, is Chris's perspective. And I think uh, from a uh, branding perspective, I think it's it's understandable for a team to want to start to sort of start anew and and start a bit fresh as inter miami did without nary a mention to the fusion except in the the name of lockhart right however this is now the fourth year that inter miami has been in existence the fusion lasted four years and what i have been able to find out and through conversations is the ice is thawing there's a bit more of an understanding of an acknowledgement of of honoring what has come before the strikers, the fusion, and now enter Miami, and perhaps an opportunity may be uh, in in the future to continue to honor what came before. So I think there is an appetite now that continues to grow to honor the legacy. I do think it would have been hard. I think folks would have been hard pressed to um, to to bridge to bridge that conversation uh, up to now. And I, I feel I would like to take a small bit of credit in, in feeling like folks listening to this show, this podcast that, that we're doing and hearing people tell the memories and talking about what it means to them and, and mentioning people like Doug Hamilton, right. And mentioning people um, like Garth Lagerway did and Chris Henderson did about how 
and they left such an impact on them. I mean, Jim and John talked about the fans. The fans are the fan community is the same. It's only continued to grow. And so when people start to hear these stories and hear the passion and hear the appetite and see the fans reacting to these stories, I think it gets people thinking, you know what? Perhaps we haven't been able to connect with the community as much as we could. So hopefully more to come. I do think MLS is getting more and more comfortable embracing the historical legacy of American soccer, whereas before, I don't know that that always existed. Yeah, before you guys uh, chime in with your maybe your final thoughts on on this, I it's um, you know given that the Miami Freedom Park I guess is uh, on its way now to being um, to being built after a long and torturous uh, process, right? It, it almost uh, seems almost um, logical, right? To uh, I and I frankly had not thought about layering in the strikers. Uh, before then as well. And, and which, you know, we've seen with MLS embracing, you know, Portland and Seattle's heritage and to a lesser extent, the San Jose earthquakes and, and some of that kind of stuff. Right. Which is, which is great because it goes, it pulls all the way back. It's authentic, right. Makes things more rooted and maybe people less cynical about this still relatively new league, only 25 or so years old. Um, but, you know, to do it perhaps at least in what will probably be the final season or two of um, drive pink stadium where, uh, you know, the Lockhart stadium used to be and where the current stadium sort of sits. Um, it would be a really cool idea. Maybe we're breaking some news here or some ideas here to, to do that next year, right before they move to Miami freedom park and, you know, and complete that circle or that original intent where, you know, uh, the original fusion franchise was going to be located in the first place nearby in, in the, you know, former orange bowl. I don't know. Maybe I'm just dreaming here, but. No, I think that's uh I think that's a good dream. Um, and we hope that those ideas continue to flow. Because really I and I I can't thank Jim and, and, and John enough for continuing to to you know share their stories and, and continue to to provide other names of folks to share their own stories because it's been it's been incredibly uh, fun and and enriching and for a, a someone who wants who aspires to be a soccer historian like myself it's a great opportunity to capture the fabric of of American soccer history and document it for for folks to listen to but truly i think the legacy of the Miami Fusion has made the foundation of major league soccer uh, the the juggernaut that it is today. And maybe that's a bit of a bold claim, but all you have to do is run run back through that starting 11 that John mentioned earlier, and you see exactly where those people are today, what impact they've had in Major League Soccer. And without those contributions, um, you, you don't have a lot of what you have now. And without most of those guys passing through Miami, they it would it's likely they do not go on to have the careers that they end up having. I know I mentioned Garth, but Garth was going to law school and he would not have come back into an MLS executive position had he not had that connection with Doug Hamilton. But it, truly, it this is an opportunity to allow folks to appreciate one of the greatest uh, histories of Major League Soccer, especially the 2001 season, and and appreciate when they're watching MLS now and they're watching Inter Miami at Dry Pink Stadium, right, or on Apple TV, that they can appreciate that the Miami Fusion played total football, right, to lay the foundation for a team bought by David Beckham 
to come in and maybe even perhaps have Lionel Messi come in and take soccer in Miami to that next level. John, Jim, do you feel a connection to the fusion? Excuse me, to the fusion. Of course you do. To my, uh, inner Miami um, and um, or not? No, I don't. And um, the thing I don't understand about it is, you know, this is, I'm not going to pretend I know about the marketing and the strategies of what, why or, or, or not. But if they re- if you really understand the players of that generation, there is nothing more than we would. I mean, why do you think we fought to do all this stuff? To get paid to 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 have a great league to possibly have, um, you know, I I wanted this league the way it is to have an opportunity as a young kid, which I didn't have, to play for Inter Miami and, and to have that pathway straight up. I mean, every one of the players of my generation that played during that time, would, that's what we were striving for. So. From my perspective, personally, this is my personal opinion. I don't know why. I'm not asking for special treatment. I'm not asking, but just to say, hey, you know, I mean, I was initially in a couple of meetings, but that was from the initial when they first were going to come down here. And they kind of, you know, the initial group didn't really handle it all that well when McDonough came down, in my opinion. So, just, I mean, and all it would take, I would love to promote the team, but never asked, never did anything. And, and that's the one thing I don't understand from, you know, um, w- 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 I would be the first one there to support the teams. I mean, this is what we all strive for. This is why John came into the league to coach because, you know, the, these new facilities are incredible for us. And so, you know, Chris is there now. It's a it, it's it's a little different, and I think Joe's right. You know, the, the the timing of it. I guess they wanted to kick off without us because I don't know. Maybe um, it just opens up um, other people to think. Well, our, our, you know, I knew they had to get out of the gate really quick, and unfortunately, the club itself they were hit with COVID. You know, all the bed they were. It was tough for them at the beginning, so. Use all the help you can get. I mean, I'm ingrained into this community. You know, I coach down here. I mean, this is our market. That's the one thing I never understood is not to give me any special treatment, but, you know, hey, you know, are you involved in a club? You know, Jimmy, okay, that's great. Let's go. Uh, you Can you help us with tickets? You don't have whatever. I was never asked anything. And we're the soccer people. So um, hopefully that changes down the line. But. Um, it hasn't happened so far. Don, you to class kind of, what do you think? To kind of follow up real quick with Jimmy's point. I mean, you know, I'm up here in Chicago. I don't live in South Florida. I obviously still speak to Ray. I still speak to guys from the team. But I think if you think about it for a second, that the baby, the youngin on the team was Kyle Beckerman. He was a generation Adidas, 17-year-old that we brought in in the middle of this project. You want to say the older elder statesman, I used to call him my uncle. He tried to call me. I was his grandfather was Precky. And then you look and I think maybe MLS has gotten to the point that these stories of a guy like Jim Rooney on the pay 
traveling all the way to New Jersey from Long Island. I mean, I, I, my parents lived in Long Island for a while. I said, Jimmy, you make the trip every single day from Long Island to New Jersey. He goes, yeah. I said, why didn't you move there? He goes, with what money? He goes, I was newly married. He goes, I was just trying to play soccer. And, and then you look at, you know, Brian Dunseth, who's a big time announcer who's followed in Ray's footpath. Um, you know, Carlos Shimosa's coaching. Chris and Garth are GMs, you know, following Doug Hamilton's footsteps. I mean, there's so many stories from that fusion group, guys that went on to play in the World Cup after being a part of the fusion. And, and just a lot of, uh, you know, I think the general soccer fan in America should have an interest in that. Just the same way I love to hear old stories about the NASL guys because I was a kid and, and I remember watching some of those players. So when I meet one of them, I remember meeting Giorgio Canalian. It was like such a big deal to meet the guy like, oh, my God, there he is in the flesh. Well, the same can be said about Jim Rooney and Carlos Shimosa. And look at the career Kyle Beckerman had. He, you know, I mean, it was a it was a unique group of guys pulled together by Doug. God rest his soul who's no longer with us and Ray. And. I know a lot of them went on to do great things at other clubs, but even Chris Henderson admitted he needed some full circle in his life to get back to South Florida. Well, maybe we all do. And maybe the fans of the fusion need us to maybe show up one more time again because it got taken away from them. And that's what sports is really about. As much as we, the coaches and the players, it's what Ray knew. Ultimately it's entertainment. Jimmy was an entertainer. The whole fusion team, they were entertainers. And there's a group of fans that still, they're trying to be Inter-Miami fans. I don't think they've quite figured it out because they were fusion fans and it got taken away from them. Yeah. And, you know, it also comes down to things like, you know, where is the supporter shield? You know, arguably it needs a place to live. I mean, there's a retroactive continuity aspect to it because there was no quote unquote supporters shield in 2001, but the effect is the same, right? Uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, essentially in 1977, I believe, won the equivalent of the regular season title, uh, what would have been called, uh, you know, today's um, supporter shield as well. I, those are two things etched in South Florida's pro soccer history that um, could physically live in the current stadium, the new stadium, at least as a reverential touchstone. Um, it, it just seems obvious to me. Now, obviously I'm biased. Joe probably fits in the same sort of mold here. Um, and you know, we've been doing this show for almost seven years now. And, and I always rail around the same idea. It's like, you know, this is, this is history. It was something, these are some things that happened and there's a continuity there. And, you know, I, you've seen MLS in fits and starts, um, warm up to it when perhaps commercially convenient. Um, this is a situation where I think it's a, inevitable. Um, and I say, I would say the same for all the other franchises out there too. I mean, Dallas with the tornado and I, you know, all these, there's, there's just, there's nothing but good things that can come from it. I understand, you know, uh, uh, you know, Garber and his, uh, 
the pot shots that he gets right for sort of growing the league and getting that 30th franchise and $500 million for San Diego. And, and you, you can't deny that kind of level of success. However, um, it, to do that with a blind eye to all the things that came from it. And I hear this from all the NASL guys I talk to for sure, um, who are humble uh, and, and genuine to the, to the core. And I hear the same in, in you guys too. Um, but it's 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 hard not to be a little miffed um, because you do want to see it succeed, but you don't want to see it sort of whitewashed either because that's not the way it happened, and frankly shouldn't be remembered as the way it happens going forward. So right, and, just, I, and we don't we don't need a plaque on the wall or anything like that, even if it's a quiet little thing, you know, and it's just to be a part of you know, like I said, where uh, there's a lot of coaches at a you know, and we could bring people together and, you know, we want it to succeed. We're, we're soccer fans, we're football fans, you know, and um, we would do anything to, to make it work, but look, they have their plan. I'm not going to pretend I'm not bitter about it. I, you know, at this point now it is what it is. Right. So we're big boys and uh, we move on from here. Thinking from a business lens, I think there's, there's a, there's one, sort of a few different um, virtues that they always teach you as far as the business sense, right? One is don't align yourself with a failed initiative or a failed brand. And you saw MLS very intentionally distance themselves from NASL. And it truly wasn't until the fans voted in the name of the Seattle Sounders in 2009 that MLS went, oh, maybe we should start embracing some of this. And I think what's misunderstood, and I, I kind of feel like this is what would John and Jim are getting to is that the principles of business, as far as not associating yourself with something like say the Miami fusion, which doesn't exist anymore to do that, you're not quite understanding the true passion behind someone who's a soccer fan. And really also even someone who's a South Florida soccer fan, because the fan base transcends those sort of traditional ideas and wants to embrace historical artifacts, historical notions to be able to celebrate and fold it into the overall legacy of the team. You are starting to see people like FC Dallas on the captain's armband. They've got the logos of the Dallas Tornado and the Dallas Burn and FC Dallas, right? So there's a little bit of a gentle nod. You're starting to see, like we, we've got Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers, Vancouver Whitecaps, San Jose Earthquakes. We've got these classic names. It's time. It's time to continue to embrace the history and not to say, oh, well, this failed, so this is going to fail too. No, to say this was the foundation. Let's build on it. Let's embrace it. Let's appreciate it. And let's celebrate it. All right, our thanks to Joe and to John and to Jim and uh, those memories of the fusion from Miami. And uh, again, the podcast uh, that is ongoing, it is called 25 for 25. Uh, and it is the, um, I think you could accurately say, the background story of the Miami fusion through many of the folks that lived through it. Uh, it is available wherever you can find fine podcasts. And I highly recommend it. Download them all and listen to them all and uh, enjoy to your heart's content. You can follow 
uh, Joe uh, on Twitter at D, the letter D, talks Joe. D talks Joe. Uh, you can also follow uh, the adventures of this podcast, uh, the Miami Fusion 20 for, excuse me, 25 for 25, he says, uh, on Instagram at Miami Fusion Pod. Uh, and while you're online, why don't you go to our website, for goodness sakes, and uh, check out all of our great episodes beyond this one uh, at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, we post every single episode there, some imagery, and if there's ever any wares to be had, like a book or a movie or whatever, uh, you can conveniently click those links there to those uh, and uh, and have them all at, uh, at, your, uh, at your fingertips. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too at GoodSeats, excuse me, at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. It's been a long week, friends. Uh, and let's see, if um, you want to follow us on social media, we're available in those places as well. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Facebook, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, what else? Uh, the best way, of course, to ensure that you get every episode of this show is to make sure that you, uh, you follow us or you uh, whatever you do, uh, you subscribe to us. There's a whole bunch of different verbs, I think, now as to what that means. But uh, whatever you need to do to uh, put a, a season or a subscription into your uh, into your device uh, a preference, make sure that you find Good Seats still available and you put that into your uh, into your infrastructure. Why don't you? Uh, and let's see what else. Our thanks, of course, to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, sir, for your uh, knob twiddling this week. And uh, we just want to mention that uh, the clip that uh, began this show uh, comes to us from uh, the actual MajorLeagueSoccer.com website. Uh, it was uh, from about nine years ago, I think. It's a, You could enjoy the entire episode. It's uh, from MLS Insider, episode number 11. I don't know if it's on the site itself. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, but uh, in addition to that clip, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, video uh, remembrance of, of the team, both pre and during uh, the Ray Hudson era. So uh, we thank them for that clip as well. And we thank you, of course, for listening this far uh, and uh, more fun and excitement coming your way next week and a whole new topic. God knows what it'll be, but uh, you'll just have to tune in, won't you? Take care and uh, be safe, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.